episode something or other of the Run Things podcast. Eight. Eight. Brilliant. Um, because seven, eight, nine. Was that a joke that we made one time? That was a joke that we made last time, I think, yeah. around seven. Doesn't yeah. work. No. no. Anyway, um, I'm Kev. She's Claire. I'm Claire. And we are here to talk running um, and fitness and mental health um, and other stuff to a brilliant woman called Liz who I won't talk about too much right now because she's going to introduce herself in a short while. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, until then, we should probably get updates. Now, we haven't put a podcast out for a couple of weeks and we would say that that's because we want to we, put it out. No, 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 we wouldn't say anything. I would say it's because Kev's been on holiday for... Ages. But that's not the real reason. That is the real reason. So we use this company for the podcast called Buzzsprout. And basically, <laughs> you're allowed to record a certain amount of uh, time per month. Otherwise, you have to pay for the next tier up. And we're so poor and tight that our buzz count, our buzz count, Buzzsprout account left us with like 19 minutes until June. Um, and that's Kathy Drew's fault because her last podcast was so long and your yeah. editing skills are so poor you couldn't bring it down. Oh, it was so much longer. Like, I cut out a good 45 minutes of content. Was that just Kathy's cackle? <laughs> oh. <laughs> You're mean. I'm on insulting mode. I've had a bad day. Um, so, yeah, so we're into June, but also today is Global Running Day, which we love um, because it's about running and it's about the world and we've got an event next month called run around the world yep um did you like that i did so good. uh so that's that but we'll talk about that later probably yeah so um, what um what activities activities have you been up to kev so i went on holiday to france yeah with my boy and my mum and my partner um and we lived in a caravan on a euro camp in the south of france for a week lovely did no exercise but swimming um jesse learnt what the silly salmon is so i don't know whether you've seen but there's some australian men who do videos and basically if one says to the other um and you'll like this australian accent uh hey claire do the silly salmon then you have to jump <laughs> into worst accent ever. that's pretty good you know um then you have to jump into whichever body of water is nearest and pretend you're a salmon as you're jumping in you guys can't see this but i'm doing like a salmon movement it's brilliant i mean we should probably just record that and put it out but jesse being jesse doesn't just say it once he then spends a whole day shouting silly salmon and it kind of loses its um yeah appeal i can imagine that so i did that and i spent the week with my mum who i adore my mum she's brilliant i will never ever ever live with her ever again Mm. because she is mental um she won't eat croissants because they're foreign she doesn't trust foreign food and she's the only person i ever know who's been to france on holiday but boils the water because she doesn't trust drinking it from the tap (laughs) i think that's sweet it's quite endearing yeah like your sweet old racist nan (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean let's not talk about my sweet old racist (laughs) um so yeah that's what we did and um that's it. I did no exercise and loved it. But now I'm back and I'm feeling like I really want to exercise. So my ongoing thing on these podcasts is I'm not bothering to do much. But now I am. Oh, that's good. I'm, I'm getting back on it. Yeah. Nice. So going to probably start doing some running at some point. But yeah, you know, that sort of thing. How about you? What have you been up to? Tell us about that half Ironman that you did. Well, I did a half Ironman. I'm person. <laughs> I'm person. So, um, yeah, it's weird. I'm officially a, a 70.3 
finisher. You're got... going to get a shit tattoo? No, Half no. of an iron person tattoo? No, I'm definitely not. Ooh, red circle above <laughs> an M. Um, but yeah, it's probably the scariest thing I've done to date in my life. Mm. So um, it went pretty well, I think, and uh, I'm really proud of myself. So, Oh, I'm proud of you. Thanks. Um, and you kept it a secret. Why? Uh, so I'd had three... Um, really bad panic attacks in the water leading up to uh, the open water swim of the triathlon. Um, So I was pretty nervous anyway going into that um, and pretty sure that there was a good point I was going to get pulled from the water because um, if it happened and I couldn't continue, then that's really the only option. The last thing you want is to get pulled off on course as well. Yeah, so (laughs) nice, nice one there. Oh, you're terrible. Um, And I didn't want the pressure. Uh, I didn't want the pressure of people texting me in the morning um, going, you know, you've got this. And although they mean well, you know, when you're putting yourself under immense pressure anyway. Hashtag smash it. And um, if you believe in yourself, then you'll succeed. Yeah. I didn't want any of that. I didn't. I just wanted to go. I wanted to do it. I wanted it to be low key. Um, It was just me and Jim and the crazy dog. And, and the uh, crazy dog was your therapy dog, wasn't he? Genuinely, like, when you felt bad in the water um, the day before, <laughs> he was there, right? He was, like, paddling, yeah. He got to go in for a little bit of a paddle because, um, yeah, he, he's got a bit of anxiety about leaving me. Um, and probably when I'm, yeah, panicking in the water, he probably wants to come and save you me, which is sweet. You should have actually used him as a therapy dog during the race and basically just ridden him across the water. <laughs> I don't think they let you use therapy dogs yeah i mean in got races. To. it's disability discrimination <laughs> so um you should have put a high vis on him and then written in biro like therapy dog yeah um yeah but i then you know then got on the bike and looked like a jockey <laughs> <laughs> in my nice new race jacket which has polka dots on it yeah. um and then i got off the bike and did my favorite bit and i knew as soon as i'd racked my bike i'd done it and i hope that is how i feel at the iron man as soon as i put that bike away i just know i've got to run and that's a bit i know i can do so here's the idea though given that swimming causes anxiety you're not very good on a bike and you know you can run mm. just bugger the other two off and keep running yeah i mean that is the thing that is going through my mind quite regularly you know why the fuck have you decided to do this when yeah. you actually don't like swimming or cycling yeah. um and you just like running you could just keep running they're mostly um, wankers anyway triathletes so you'll be all right i don't know i running. i thought that right maybe and, that's why you and, fit in <laughs> thanks i also thought cyclists are mostly wankers too yeah but they are i have not had anyone be as nice to me ever as on that day people were so lovely they kind of knew it was my first triathlon and Is it obvious everyone no i stabilizes <laughs> screw you <laughs> Hang uh, it on back. <laughs> um and every cyclist who lapped me because i got lapped numerous times on the bike because i'm shit at cycling um basically just said how well i was doing and just to keep going and it was an amazing thing and um yeah people were super nice and i've had a few messages on twitter from people to say you know congratulations and stuff so that jokes was really aside sweet. that that really is the case no matter how good somebody is if they pass you you get encouragement don't you oh yeah definitely and it's kind of helped with my anxiety around kind of 
not performing well because I pretty much came fifth from bottom. Well, I did come fifth from bottom. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. That's <laughs> the truth. Um, I was like sixth out of the water and then I was, I think there was only two people after me on the bike. And yeah, so in the end I was fifth from last and I could not care. I'm more proud of what I did last weekend than I have been of any of my PBs or races or anything like that. So just goes mm. to show it's not about numbers. I really feel like I can't take the piss, which makes me feel awkward. So yeah. can we talk about something where I could take the piss out of you? Yeah. Oh, I did actually go for a piss, if we want to talk about that. Oh, hit me up. <laughs> I love a bit of uh, so, um, water talk. <laughs> I'd read Chrissy Wellington's book um, and she talks about how you just have to go for a piss on your bike like during tri- triathlon that's just what you do if you need a wee and I was trying so hard to go for a wee on my bike but I was so pee shy that I just couldn't do it so I basically held this pee in from well for like four hours whilst I was riding and then got on the run and was running through villages so I couldn't stop and pee there So I had to wait till I was up like in the new forest where there was somewhere to hide. And um, then I had to take my full tri-suit off like to go for a wee because I didn't want a wee just in my tri-suit. So I'm like basically naked in a bush in the new forest going for a wee. Which I think for most people who live in the New Forest is generally what happens. Uh, yeah, yeah. Backwards. I, I, <laughs> I, I think they're just, you know, okay with nature. I was just very shy about the whole thing. But, Almost yeah. as bad as people from Norfolk, but we won't go there. <laughs> I'm getting stared at. Just isolating individual <laughs> clusters of people. Slowly, yeah, but we're surely. losing podcast listeners by the by the episode. So. But we're also going to be talking to a triathlete who lives in East Anglia soon. So yeah, hi Liz. Um, so um aside from that, I, earlier on i kind of put a quick thing on twitter saying what do you want us to talk about um and a couple of people actually did respond to us wow um i know um admittedly um one was my mum and the other one was my other account but you know that's fine too um but i actually was really interested by something that uh, paul said to us which was you could talk about times um, and why everyone asks what time you did it in, mm. which we've sort of alluded to in the past about trying too hard. But why does time matter to people, especially people who don't run and don't know about stuff? I think, no, I'd see, so that I think is, so I, at work, like, because people know that I'm active, it's kind of, and, and in other social situations, it's just the go-to thing that people talk to you about. It's kind of like that social awkward chat where they're like oh okay well we need to talk about something because we're in the lift together now and you exercise so what time are you going for so you either ask that question or you fart so, <laughs> so it's either that or aren't you worried about your knees yeah it, it's the age-old classic of when you when you're pissed and you get into a taxi and you go been busy yes or, it is what time you on to and i do that to taxi drivers <laughs> i do that do. and so you can't blame anyone it's just when people are out of their comfort zone, I think they just go to those go-to questions, which they know they're not going to get laughed at for asking because they've heard people ask it. So they go, oh, yeah, what what were your times? Yeah, which is kind of nice that they're at least pretending to care. Yeah. Um, I, on the other hand, try not to ask people about their times because I'm really conscious that it's a shit question um, and actually go for um, how was it, a simple how was it. Um, and then they'll go, oh, it was much harder than I thought, which is an obvious answer. And I want more from them, frankly. Mm. They should have really 
worked harder at their answer. Yeah. Um, another one was my mate Phil, who didn't ask a question, but he did tell me that he wants me to um, tell everyone about Frazzled Cafe, which I've never heard of. So sorry, Phil. Um, but Frazzled is uh, really simple, and I should have heard of it because it's by a hero of mine, Ruby Wax, mm. who's dead smart, dead funny. Um, and also has a filthy voice, um, but that's probably just the niche interest of mine. Um, and it's supported by Marks and Spencers, um, and they're all around the place. So from what I understand, and apologies because I don't know this stuff inside out, and frankly I haven't read too much about it yet, um, is Marks and Spencers put on these kind of cafe-type things, in, unsurprisingly, in their cafes, actually, rather than in their lingerie departments. Um, and it's a charity that supports people who feel frazzled, and they just meet up. And all feel a bit frazzled together. That's brilliant. Yeah, which, which is. And I love the fact it's frazzled because it can mean anything to anyone. Yeah. Um, and the fact that normal people like Phil, he's mostly normal-ish. Um, We're all mostly normal-ish. Well, he lives in Stoke-on-Trent, <laughs> so there must be something wrong with him. Okay, another place, gone. <laughs> just going to be the few worthing, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think strong. he's, actually, he's doing the... Um, the potter's off this weekend or was it last anyway doesn't matter so uh, frazzle cafe sounds brilliant have a look at it at frazzle cafe um on twitter probably got other things as well um and if you feel a bit frazzled then um definitely look it up because it's a great idea it's something i'd be shit scared of mm. like walking in and seeing a bunch of other frazzled people but for some people it's got to work right and the more opportunities we give people to get together just like the run and- have you heard of run and talk yeah so just like run and talk it's whatever your niche is there will be something for you, which is really kind of enlightening. Anyway, uh, for the next podcast, name your place and I'll insult it for you. <laughs> or just don't and you will anyway. So should we get a bit more serious yeah. and talk to someone who's actually interesting? Yeah. Rather than try to massage this into something that sounds just a bit above mediocre. I mean, that's just words now, isn't it? It's all gone a bit weird. Let's yeah. talk to Liz. Okay, so I am really excited uh, to introduce our next podcast victim, as it were. I don't think um, you should call them victims. That sounds a bit dangerous. No, but they all leave in pain, usually. <laughs> Mental, physical, whichever. Or I do. Yeah, well, always. Um, but um, I'm, I'm really excited because um, I've never met this person. I've read a lot about this person. And I've kind of forgotten how I met this person virtually. Um, I just came across her on Twitter. And she's phenomenal. And I don't really want to say anything else because I think she'll say it much more better than me. See, much more better than me. Brilliant. <laughs> Too many beers. <laughs> Tr- Trump's in town. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, um, she's hugely brilliant. So I want to introduce uh, Liz O'Riordan, who uh, is actually going to then introduce herself. Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm laughing already. I like being a victim. (laughs) (laughs) You'll get a reputation saying things like that. Uh, Yeah, no, I do. It's weird being on the other side. So I was a consultant breast surgeon and I got diagnosed with stage three breast cancer at the age of 40 and realized I knew nothing about having breast cancer, what it was really like. And I started writing as a way to make it real because I was still in denial. I didn't have cancer. I'm a cancer surgeon. And that blogging led to me talking all over the world about my experiences. And that led to me focusing a lot on sport and digital health and how you cope when the shit hits the fan. Wow. That's and Twitter has changed my life. Yeah. 
I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Twitter. So I kind of don't really know where to start because there's so much. Um, and I think what we're going to probably end up doing is asking for loads of uh, clarifications and it's going to be all over the place, just like we usually are. What's, um, what's, Sounds perfect. What's stage two? So this is where it gets quite complicated. Basically, you've got cancer that hasn't spread. And that's stage one, two, or three, depending on how big it is and how many lymph nodes are involved. And then you've got cancer that has spread, which is advanced cancer or stage four, in a nutshell. So I was diagnosed with cancer that was only in my breast. And then last year in May, it came back on my chest wall. That's a local recurrence. So I had more surgery and radiotherapy to treat that. And I'm coming up to a year cancer-free again. Yay! And well, yeah, congratulations. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> and you say on your chest wall, is that because it was post mastectomy? It's so cancer can either come back locally on the skin or in the scar or the breast or your armpit, or it can come back distantly. Not distantly, you've got me talking bad. Um, <laughs> distant in your lungs or your bones or your liver or your brain. So you can get a local recurrence despite surgery and radiotherapy. Sometimes there are just cells that stay in the body that are too small to see that just escape treatment. Um, and that's what happened to me. And and how did you find out that you had cancer? Was it, you know, through ah. just breast exams or? So I've had quite lumpy, cysty breasts. And like most women, well, a lot of women, I never checked them. Mm. I didn't think I would get breast cancer. I was 40. What's the point of checking? Which is awful, I know. But a lot of patients don't check their breasts regularly. And I'd had a cyst six months before. And I'd had a mammogram and that was normal. And then I had another lump in the same breast. And I thought it was probably another cyst. And I didn't worry about it. And it was my mum who said, look, for God's sake, I'm worried if you're not. Went to see my surgeon who said, well, I'm not sure what it is. We'll get scanned again. Neither of us thought this would be a cancer. And I'm a breast surgeon. I should know what it feels like. Mm. But it turned out to be quite a large cancer. So I had chemotherapy within about a week of being diagnosed to try and shrink it down. And then a mastectomy and then radiotherapy. But it was weird because normally when you're ill, you're drip-fed information. You have a symptom like blood in your poo and you go to the doctor and they do a test and then you get the results and then you have surgery and you get the results. When I saw my ultrasound scan, I knew it's cancer, it was big, I need chemo, I knew what my 10-year survival probably was. And how do you as a doctor become a patient to your friends and family? And I was explaining to my family what was going on, like a doctor talking about another patient. Mm. Did it Instead feel of like, being a daughter, it's just... Did, did it feel like sorry, quite a, a, a sort of out-of-body almost experience that you... Yes, uh, exactly. And you're, that's kind of a it coping like, mechanism as well, isn't it? To kind of like revert to like, job type. Yeah. I swear it was like a light bulb went off and I was just floating above looking down. This isn't real. This isn't happening. It's just happening to another of my patients. It's fine. And part of me still thinks I haven't had cancer. It's really weird. But I think that's a, that's a protection mechanism because of everything I've seen as a breast cancer surgeon. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you don't want to remember what might happen to you. So your mm. brain kind of shuts it out. What was it like when you received the news because it's obviously every person reacts differently um and if i yeah. can quickly tell a story because basically i love talking about myself more than anything um my best mate um he's now a consultant anesthetist and uh what five years ago his son was born and um a few hours after his birth he took a real turn for the worst 
And Rob, my mate, said to me, the worst thing is knowing exactly what they're talking about. And, you know, yeah. you can't hide behind not knowing anything. Did you feel the same? So it's a bit weird for me. So before, when I saw the ultrasound, before they did the biopsy, I knew it was cancer. I do ultrasounds myself. And although I had to wait for the results, I knew. So I rang my mum and dad and said, sit down. I'm going to tell you in three days I have breast cancer. Wow. So don't be silly. No, I am. I am. So when I was waiting to get the news, I knew what it was. And I told my husband, this is something I've noticed in clinic, if the breast care nurse comes to get you, it's bad news because the surgeon needs a support. If it's a normal clinic nurse, you're probably okay. And I told my husband, who's also a surgeon, the breast care nurse will come to get us and it's cancer. And she did. And everyone in the room was crying because I'd worked with them as a junior and senior doctor. But I was like, yeah, I know this. It's not happening. Mm -hmm. However, after chemotherapy, my scan showed that my tumor had completely disappeared. And I'd had my mastectomy expecting good news. And it was the day before, it was the 23rd of December. And I remember dressing up, being in that waiting room, looking at all those other couples ready to get bad news. You know, you're clenching your fist, you're looking at the floor, you're kind of praying. And I went in smiling. Mm -hmm. And I got to hear my surgeon tell me that actually there was 13 centimeters of cancer still in my breast and it had spread to my lymph nodes. And suddenly, that was the shock. And all I wanted to do was to run out that room screaming. This cannot be happening. And you remember every single detail that you have to stay and you have to be examined and be given bad news and given information and then do the walk of shame getting all the way out of the hospital until you're finally outside and can break down. And that was a revelation to be really on the other side of what I do to patients 10 times a day. When you say a revelation, do you mean something that you found uh beneficial? And do you feel like yeah. having gone through it now, you sort of... And we, I mean, I imagine you do understand more, so apologies for, for being so simple about it. But no. do you understand more and, and feel that sort of level of empathy that you otherwise wouldn't? Yes. So I, it changed how my husband and I break bad news for the better, although we were both very good at it before. But you, you realize as a patient, you will remember every single detail of that consultation because it's one of the most important things to happen. But as a doctor... It's kind of run of the mill because you tell five people they've got cancer in the morning. You realize that words matter. And I, having seen the vast spectrum of breast cancer, I used to say, you know, you're lucky we caught it early. Mm. But no one is lucky to get breast cancer. Mm. And realizing the importance of giving patients time to think and tell you what's really on their mind and be able to say, yes, this is shit, but we're going to get you through this rather than, oh, no, don't be worried. It's just a little cancer. Well, you've not had cancer. Yeah. It's just being aware of the impact. Wow. Um, but I think every, every, every doctor has their own style and not every patient will get on with that doctor's style. We're all very, very individual and have our own ways and means, but it's just realizing patients do not take anything in after you tell them they have cancer. No, I can imagine they hear a word and that's it. It's kind of, you know, the rest you could be gobbledygook and it, it really wouldn't yeah, matter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you sort of said that following on from obviously that terrible news and everything that you've been through, you, you've now travelled all around the world, um, you've written a book, you talk at lots of events, kind of how, how do you go from um, sort of being a cancer survivor to being known around the world and kind of sharing your story, what what was that journey like? It's bizarre. I so I 
I used to tweet a lot, mainly about triathlons and baking. By doing all the sport, I could eat all the cake. Now Claire's and listening, thought... by the way. You've said triathlon and baking. <laughs> yeah. Her eyes have gone wider. I Two favourite things. <laughs> um, I can talk a lot about that. Let's forget the rest. Um, I thought I can't, I can't not tweet about cancer. And people will recognise me because I was going to lose my hair. And I just thought, I want to tell the world I have it. It's not a dirty secret. But my husband had to be on board. And he said, yes, okay. And by me telling the world, it meant he could get the support. So the day after my diagnosis, I just pressed a button on Twitter saying, I'm coming out, I've got breast cancer. And my life, that was one of the best days of my life. Because I suddenly found hundreds of people all over the world offering support and advice. It's amazing. And that led to people asking me to talk and to write. I still don't think I've done anything amazing. Mm. I've just coped. Isn't it... I don't really get the impact that, that of everything I've done. It's really weird because it's just me coping. And I don't know where this inner strength came from. But it's suddenly... When I was off sick for a year, having chemo and surgery and radiotherapy, I lost my role. I lost my purpose for being. All I ever wanted to be was a doctor. And I spent 20 years training to be a consultant breast surgeon, and that was taken away from me. But through writing and talking, I can help so many people all over the world. And it's that sense of helping that I still have, and it's almost more fulfilling. Yeah. Isn't it a shame that... um that it takes some sort of adversity or problems or issues or sadness to to bring people out in a supportive nature sometimes. Shouldn't it just it, happen? It's so common. I know. Because you hear people say, I, I had a massive life change when this happened or this happened. And I would just wish people could realise... I didn't want my Greystone to say she was an amazing surgeon who always answered emails at midnight and came in on the days off. Yeah. I want to be known for being an amazing woman or a friend or a stepmother and not be defined by work. And having cancer made me realize that work is only a third of my day. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it doesn't define me. And actually, I was the most boring dinner party guest because <laughs> 20 years of medical school meant I had no hobbies. I didn't know what was going on in current affairs. I was boring. You've never had dinner And I'd lost Claire. my life. <laughs> I'd lost my life. And it's made me realize there's so much more that you... That, that you need to be healthy and fulfilled. Yeah. Is, do, do you feel... And bought as part of that for me. Do you feel there was um, a stigma attached to being a breast surgeon that had and has breast cancer? Or did you, did you no. never feel that at all? No, I never felt... I think it was hard for my colleagues to treat me. I think there's a whole... It's very difficult as a doctor to be on the other side, especially in a hospital where you work. And I've actually set up a WhatsApp group for doctors with cancer because it's really weird. People either don't tell you what's going on or they assume you know things or they treat you like an idiot. You often get quite bad care. And I think that's really difficult. But because I've been on both sides of the table, I could get the respect of medical audiences to say, have you thought about this to improve patient care? I can almost do what a lot of amazing patient advocates can't because I've been a doctor and I can get other people to listen to the messages they're trying to get through. And, you and said, that may sound a bit boastful, I don't mean it to be, but it's it's just a unique position. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, and you said kind of sport's been really important to you. Um, you. You mentioned about kind of tweeting about triathlon beforehand, but what yes. kind of role did sport play for you during... So, yeah, my maiden name is my my maiden name is Ball, but I can't hit, throw, or catch one to save my life. <laughs> I did very little sport at school. I swam a bit. I did the London Marathon badly when I was thirty. Um, 
And then I started dating my husband. He took up cycling and I became a cycling widow because he'd cycle all morning and sleep all afternoon. I thought, if I don't get him, I can't ever see him. Was he a mammal? <laughs> so within a year, he was a mammal. Yeah. So within a year, he got me a bike. We did the Ride 100. And then I got bored of cycling. I thought, well, I run a bit and swim a bit. I could do a triathlon. And like a typical surgeon, I bought every book and read every magazine about triathlons. <laughs> and in my head, I was doing them. And my husband got fed up of me and signed me up to do one on my 40th. Will you just go ahead and lum and do one? So I did. And I got the bug. It was amazing. Just it's ridiculous to run in a wet like a wandy, having just cycled and swum. It makes no sense at all. But I just love that it was a crazy sport. And it doesn't matter whether you're first or last. Everyone gets medal. And then nine months later, I got cancer. And I was determined to carry on exercising through chemo, which is ridiculous because I did no sport at school. But it's I think for me, it's a kind of mindfulness. When I'm exercising, I forget I've got cancer. I forget my troubles. It's just a way of working through what's going on and just being outside. And I realize that if you go to any cancer charity website, say Macmillan, they say you should exercise, but ask your doctor or nurse if it's safe. We get no training. We don't get told how to tell healthy people to exercise, let alone people having this huge variety of cancer treatments. And if your doctors don't exercise, they don't get how good it can make you feel. And that's where Twitter was a godsend because I found women with metastatic cancer going to the gym and rowing and cycling and thought, wow, if they can do it, I can. And that started a whole new movement of inspiring others to say, hey, look, come on. And I asked my local um, cycling club were having their sprint triathlon. And it was halfway through chemo the day before my birthday. And I just said, I want to do this. And I had to persuade them that I wouldn't be stupid, that I would stop if I was feeling poorly, but they let me. And crossing that finish line with my bold head thinking, wow, look what I achieved. I was really, really slow, but I didn't care. I ran every step. That was just amazing. It's um, um the, the thing is as well with that, you know, it's it's not just about physical health, is it? It's about your mental health. Now, I know that, um, you know, trying to sort of, um, I guess, segue you into talking about how important it is for the mind. But I guess oh, hugely. What about your your actual physical health uh, during chemo? Because I imagine you get tired quicker and things like that. Is it dangerous to exercise, and do you have to reduce intensity, or can you just go until no. you're knackered? Right. There is so much evidence now to show that exercise is good for cancer patients. Whether you do it in the build up to surgery, actually during your chemo infusion on an exercise bike in the hospital, on your good days during chemo, and for the rest of your life. It reduces the risk for parents. It's good for the mental health. The best treatment for fatigue, and I now know it is proper bone crushing, I cannot lift my neck off the sofa fatigue, is exercise. Exercise reduces the side effects of chemotherapy. The best advice I was given was to drink three litres of water a day and to walk for half an hour every day. And you'll hate me for saying it, do it. And they were right. Mm -hmm. In Denmark, if you're having chemo, you're given a 12-week program in the gym where you did they do hit intervals proper hard fast cardio intervals and weight training as long as you listen to your body and your heart rate there's no reason why you can't work hard people think oh they shouldn't do it they can't cope they're having chemo but actually if you feel fit and healthy there's no reason why you can't push it you may take longer to recover and you won't be as fast as you are but actually it is the best thing you can do to reduce the risk of cancer coming back and reduce the complications of treatment it should almost be 
rants coming up. It should be the fourth treatment of cancer. Mm. Surgery, chemo, radiotherapy and exercise. And if your doctor's not telling you, they're almost being negligent because it's good for you. It will make you feel better. It will reduce the complications. And I think it must... That's um, how powerful a drug it can be. It, it must give you a sense of self. You kind of spoke a bit about, yeah. you know, how... You, not working being in that environment you know losing so much of you losing your hair you know all of that is parts of you that is disappearing if there's something that you can have a tiny bit of control over in that situation that can only be a good thing it's gaining control when I thought I have two arms and two legs that work I want to keep my body strong so I can cope with whatever comes next and I want to it can't take exercise away from me. Cancer can't take my body away from me. I had to learn to ignore my Strava time. Mm. I never, I've, I've yet to crack half an hour for my part of runs. I started doing them during chemo, but if it was 40 minutes, that's fine. And actually, I learned to exercise because I loved it. Instead of before I go out on a bike and I'd be looking at my computer and I'm not fast enough, I just cycle and look at the scenery. And actually, being outside in nature, the countryside, that mindfulness was amazing. Mm. Yeah, so it's kind of something that we touch on the podcast quite a lot around, um, you know, exercise is obviously hugely positive, but then there is that kind of negativity that can come with it when you're um, looking at your times all the time and trying to yeah. compete with everyone else, especially on social media and you're kind of seeing oh, I know. everything else out there. And, and yeah, it, it does. I think we all reach that point, at, you know, when yeah. we go, actually, we just exercise because we love it. But yeah, something like that just yeah. brings that home that if, if, so, if someone said to you, you can either get quick right now or you can exercise for the rest of your life, what would you have? I mean, I'd take exercising yeah. for the rest of my life. Yeah, absolutely. What, Liz, yeah. what, um, what effects does uh cancer have on your sporting performance post treatment and surgery and recovery so i guess it depends what treatment you've had some people just have surgery some people can have a year of chemo chemo can biologically age you by 10 years it lowers your immune system and your bone marrow so you can get infections really quickly which is why you need to make sure if you're swimming you don't go in the saunas and jacuzzis and the kids pool where people pee just kind of being sensible it does knacker you. You have bone-crushing fatigue. But the best thing for fatigue is to exercise. But you may only walk 100 metres in half an hour, and that's fine. You'll go a bit more the next day. Women, it, women um, with breast cancer, it can bring on the menopause, and that has a whole other issue of um, getting a lot of joint pains and niggles, tender niggles and problems and weight gain and cramps. And it's, there's so many side effects depending on the treatment. Surgery, especially the keyhole surgery, you may feel fitter than you are because you've got it can be like a bomb site inside but you can't see the scars mm. and I think a lot of surgeons are quite cautious about telling people when to exercise because they don't want you to do their handiwork and I I, I was I was talking about this earlier today um if there's a new drug that I want to give someone there are years and years and years of trials and papers and evidence showing this is why it's good and this is why it works this is why we say take this dose at this time if I ask someone, when can I run after my gallbladder operation, they will give their best guess based on what they heard their bosses say or what they think is common sense. And I say, well, where's the evidence? Where can you tell me that it isn't safe? You don't know you're making it up. So why don't you let me be the judge and say, listen to my own body. I actually feel I could go for a small run today. Does, um, we're just making up what we think is right and there isn't evidence there and I think we can do a lot patients can do a lot more than their surgeons think they can you just need to rein in the type A personalities who want to run a marathon 
look, you need time to heal. You actually need to let your body recover from the chemo, which is trying to save you. So it's that fine line of being active and getting a sweat up and forgetting your old PBs. And I've got quite a few friends on Twitter who are you know, kind of proper long-distance serious endurance athletes. I've said, look, use this time to go back to basics. Do the strength and conditioning work. Do the lunges. Do the flexibility. Kind of re- reset the body. Think of it as a year of base prep. And then get going again when you've recovered. So do you think we're behind the times when it comes to exercise and cancer recovery? Because yes. like everything, yes. the, the science changes over time, doesn't it? My son is five and a half now. And I remember when his mum was pregnant with him. She's a personal trainer, knows her body inside yep. out, you know, is, is incredible yep. with anatomy, physiology, stuff like that. And my mum almost collapsed when she told her that she was going for a run at six months pregnant. My mum is, is a classic, and I love my mum. Mum, if you're listening, hello, thanks. Um, but she's, Hi. She's, Hi. <laughs> she is a classic um, case, not in your condition type of person. Yes. And I yes. guess that must be the case until the science keeps coming through and people read and it gets in the journals, it must be a case of stick to what's been told before. Yeah. And that must be where your new digital kind of platform comes in as well, then, yeah, in improving it for everyone. Yeah. What comes to that, but I say exercise oncology is one of the fastest growing fields in research at the moment. And there's just been a conference in the States run by the American College of Sports Medicine with a bit on exercise oncology. So they're going right back to basics from mitochondrial immune system why is it working? But all these studies showing it works. And I think it's just getting people to realize if you haven't had chemo, you don't know what it's like. So you don't know what people are capable of. So in, there was a study where they, they, were, they were telling the cancer day, day nurses that the patients are going to exercise. And all the unit nurses said, oh, no, my patients can't cope. They're old. They're having chemo. And they said, come to the gym and watch them working out. And the nurses saw the patients were thinner and stronger and fitter than they were. Mm. That makes sense. There's no reason why. So I've, I've, fallen, I've been able to watch a triathlon camp in Denmark where they take people from 30 to 75 on an active triathlon camp. I was mountain biking down volcano ridges, 75-year-old cancer patients. We don't care you've got cancer. You are active. You can do sports. Now get down that Come hill. Come and have a go. <laughs> you know? I think um, that's amazing because so it's a pragmatic approach to life, isn't it? And sort of, you know, exactly. giving stuff a go. I feel like stories like that need to be out there in the media because, uh, yeah, naively, I guess, before this, I I thought, yeah, it, if you're poorly, you're poorly, right? So, yeah, you wouldn't be able to do anything. I know. But I guess, I guess why not? But then you're saying that and, and you're saying that poorly is in physical health. But then we both know a lot about mental health. Yeah. And what do you do when you feel mentally poorly? Oh, yeah. You go and exercise. Yeah. So, you know, there's... Or a... you eat cake and sleep for two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you need a couple of days of wallowing. Yeah. <laughs> but also, yeah, it's, it's what's right for you, isn't it? It's not that this is prescribed yeah. and this is what you have to do, but it's what you feel is the right thing at any given time with a bit of expert advice in there as well yeah wow. the thing that saves me i went for a walk with my neighbor every morning at six o'clock before she took the kids to school during hema days even when it was snowing and really wet and that was our time just to natter and chat about anything but cancer and it got me out the house and i felt i burnt the right to smoke on the sofa because i had been out for half an hour yeah and it's almost earning the right because you've ticked that box until you start to feel good and want to do a bit more but the digital platform um Sorry, Claire, are you going to say something? No, no, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead and, and um, tell us a bit more about the digital platform. So 
I realized when I wanted to find out whether I could exercise, there was no one out there who could tell me. And it was me finding random people on Twitter saying, well, they did it, I can. And through speaking about sport, I've had a load of people contact me and we kind of realized this is burning need to help people realize what they can and can't do. So with four other people, I've set up, um, it's a charity and a movement called CancerFit. The website is www.cancerfit.me and we're about to launch this charity. What we want to be is a digital platform where first patients can read other blogs and stories of other people exercising so you can get inspired and write in and tell us what you're doing. Because if you see, oh, they've had my cancer and they've done this, maybe I could. Mm. And then become a place of information where healthcare professionals can find out what they can do. So if someone asked me, is it safe to hula hoop if you have a colostomy? What do you say? So I asked Twitter. And I found someone, an oncologist told me about a patient who was a 50-year-old Russian pole dancer who had a colostomy and she was upside down on a pole doing the split. You can do anything. That's amazing. And it's just helping, helping spread that information. What are people doing? Anything is possible. Forget your old beliefs. Um, and so we're kind of launching that in the next couple of months just to help get people everybody with cancer exercising. We'd love to um, to help with that. So if there's anything that Run Things can do to promote it and put it out there, just let us know because it's, it's, I will it sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah, it does. It sounds um, really good. A bit of a, a kind of something that I was just thinking about um, and just wondering if you can talk about it a little bit is um, how has it been uh, being kind of a woman in the field of surgery? You know, what's, what's that like? Ah... So things are getting a lot better. When I, I was a surgeon, junior surgeon in the early 90s in Wales, and there was an awful lot of sexual harassment and bullying that went on. Mm. I was only one of two junior surgical trainees in Wales. So it was mainly men teaching men, and there was a lot of going plump the pillows, that's all you're good for. It was really, really hard. And I think... I, I was quite naive then. I wasn't very confident in my own skin. And I felt you, to cope in that very, very male-dominated field, you either had to be, I say, Laura Ashley-like, prim and proper, and get upset by all the rude jokes and the flirting and the chauvinism. But then they'd, they'd say, you know, at the time, oh, you're just a lesbian, we can't talk about rude jokes, you're boring. And you kind of get isolated because you're prim and proper. Or you swing the other way and you act as one of the lads and you tell a dirtier joke just to join in. But then you're not seen as a woman, you're seen as one of the lads. And mm. it's really hard to kind of establish who you are. I found it really, really hard. And it was only as I got more senior and I realized I'm good at what I'm doing. And you kind of learn to find that balance and find your identity. Um, but it is still hard now. There are still people being, I think you have to work harder as a woman to get that respect because there are dinosaurs out there who still think it's not a job. And what's the... Um... I was... What's the kind of uh, split, I guess, of female and male surgeons in your there's field? About, there's about 12% of all consultative surgeons in the UK are female. Okay. Can I, can I ask a 12%. question on, on top of that? Do you, and this yeah. is kind of multifaceted, I guess. First off, do you think that's due to historical reasons and, and frankly, men feeling like they've got a God complex, which let's face it, we all do. And there's, there's nothing all more surgeons God... are God. Women well, have God complexes too. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? There's nothing more godly than, than having somebody uh, quite literally at your fingertips. Um, and the second yeah. part is, how do we buck that trend? So, um, and this is a little bit selfish because my other half, who is is incredible person, 
she's currently um, a, a foundation year two um, doctor, junior doctor. And yeah. she's just going into here. Um, she's decided to take an FY3 because she can't decide what she'd like to do. So she's going to kind yeah. of uh, do a, a fellowship. Um, but how did you decide that surgery was the thing for you, given that it was, you know, a little while ago and it probably was worse back then than it is now? I, as a junior, as a medical student and at, and at school, you're not really aware of the sexual harassment bullying. You just, do you want to be a doctor or not? My dad was a surgeon. But I was always fascinated by making people better. And even at medical school, I couldn't be asked to listen to the ward rounds while they were tinkering about changing a drug. I wanted to be in theatre. And I think you know you're a pyjama wearer or not. But do you want to be in an operating theatre, either above operating or as an anaesthetist? Do you either like being pyjamas or you don't? Mm. And that's the first thing. And I just love that I, it's like a logic problem. I can talk to someone. I think, oh, you might have appendicitis. I open them up. They have appendicitis. I take it out. They leave hospital better. I love that practicality of it. And I think most surgeons know they want to do surgery and they will cope with the long hours and the criticism and the bullying. And you, you get that from women as well as men. Women can be our own worst enemies, but it's what you need to do. And everyone kind of finds their field. But firstly, your other half needs to know, does she want to wear pajamas or not? Mm-hmm. And then the rest will work itself out. The movement a couple of years ago with a hashtag, I look like a surgeon. I think Heather Log in the States started it because often patients assume you're the nurse. And I remember doing a ward round. There was me and I had two juniors and a male medical student and the juniors were female. And the patient talked to the male medical student. Yeah. that's like, exactly, No, I'm the surgeon. Yes. That's it, exactly that, what Molly that, gets. It's a cultural thing. Yeah. It's a cultural thing. She's on a GP rotation at the moment. She said she's never felt so much like a doctor because she gets talked to like yeah. a doctor. But when she's on a ward round, she's the kind of ancillary yeah. person, I guess. And it is always the guys that are spoken to. And that, that's the game. So I'll come to that. Remind me about how to play the game. But, but, but so that the movement I Look Like a Surgeon was women all over the world saying, I look like a surgeon. And then there was that cover of the Times. They had four faces looking into a theatre light, and there were groups of women doing that. And Twitter is helping women find other female mentors and surgeons saying, we, there are us, we can do it, you can have kids, you can have a life, but you need to compromise. You cannot be the perfect surgeon, mother, wife. You will have a messy house or you will have a nanny raise the kids. Something has to give. I almost think women need a wife as well as a wife and a husband. <laughs> and that's the problem with the hours and the maternity. It's really, really hard. Yeah. And that's where a lot of women have to make compromises. I, you don't know how you want to bring your kids until you have them. You don't know whether you want to have them or not. Often it's too late. You don't meet partners. It's very hard as a woman to often find a male partner when you're a female surgeon because if you're an alpha job, how do you find another man who can cope with you having an alpha job? And if he's a surgeon too, you'll never see each other because you're both doing on call. And it's a night shift. So there's a lot of compromise you need to make, but it can be done. I know some amazing maxillofacial surgeons, the transplant surgeons, the neurosurgeons who are all female. There's always that. There's also Having, that. Um, sorry. There's also that case of um, it's it's a system, isn't it? The NHS training system that that seems to be set up by men because. The training system doesn't seem to take into account the need for maternity leave. And when you look at things like the length of training that people have to go to to get to the phase that they want to, by the time the women get old enough to to be in a very secure, very straight up job that's fully trained, they're also getting quite old themselves when it comes to their biological clocks. I know. I know. I would say, firstly, um, you have kids when you're ready to have kids. 
You don't wait until you're a senior registrar or a consultant because that time may not happen. You don't let your work rule your life. You, and there are more and more flexible trainees coming in and part-time working. It is coming. There, there's now a part-time college, um, sorry, a consultant in, in charge of part-time training on the Royal College of Surgeons. But if you want kids, you have them when you want them and everything else to work around it. Mm. That's really, really important. Um, it's just believing in your heart that this is what you want to do until life changes. When I was 23, I was going to be Wales' first female trauma surgeon married with three kids at the age of 27. <laughs> and then the I realized I hated, I hated being on call. I didn't like not knowing what I was doing. I was one of those, just show me one more time, don't make me do it. The first solo appendix I did, there was sweat running down my back. It was disgusting because I was just so stressed. And mm. I was close to quitting surgery because... I trained in Wales, and then I did my senior training in East Anglia. So I literally moved the opposite end of the country. I left all my friends behind, all my social networks. I moved. I was in Ipswich, Norwich, Luton, no real social networks. And I thought, I'd rather work in M&S, stacking shelves, than have a social life, than do the long hours, write the PhD, have no life. Because I was miserable. I loved the job, but it wasn't enough. And then I started dating my husband. He was my boss. Now I am. He asked me out the day I left. He was a good boy. <laughs> and then I found breast surgery. And there's no one call. Mm. My patients don't die of breast cancer in the middle of the night. I had a life. And that was my way of finding that balance. That's, uh, that's really enlightening, actually. Not just for me personally. And, and I would definitely make Molly listen to this because it's, you know... You have to weigh up so much more, like you said earlier, and it always comes back to the fact that your job should be one third of your day. Um, although, frankly, I'd like to spend one third of my day sleeping, and that never ever happens. But you know, you the other third eating cake, the other third doing triathlon. Yes, yeah. definitely. <laughs> that's, that's, that's four thirds. <laughs> you, all the cake. I'm going to open the sourdough store. So, you do not know what's around the corner. Mm. I didn't think I'd get breast cancer at 40. And I think you can, you worry about jobs and exams. That's another thing. Someone told me being a consultant is boring because you do the same three things. So as a surgeon, I would do the same three operations, vasectomy, lumpectomy, lymph nodes. You say the same thing in clinic, breast pain, 20 times a day three times a week for the next 40 weeks of the year. It is boring because you are an expert in one thing. There's no rush to get there. Take three or four years out to go part-time. Do something else. There's no rush. We're all going to be working till we're 70. It doesn't matter if you go part-time and have 10 kids along the way. It doesn't matter. That's if a you miserable really want thought, to get back though. there, you will. Working till 70. But actually, oh, God, I know. I hope not. <laughs> but it's that. It's, it's what you do outside of your job that excites you and that's either research or management or triathlons or baking or feeding all the hedgehogs as I do actually your job becomes boring which is quite nice because yeah. you're very good at it yeah. and it's a step outside that gets you going but you don't know when you're 25 trying to set your exam yeah because everyone else says that everything else is important you know I work with um, with prospective university students so I speak to lots of, of potential medics and every single one of them is told that another thing is the most important thing at their life at that given time. Oh, it's and rubbish. They've got so many people all telling them that they're more important than others. And they Who just get pulled to? in. Yeah, exactly. And you end up listening to nobody or listening to everyone and just I know. completely burning yourself out. Um, Liz, so I talk to... Oh, go on. Sorry. sorry. No, you go. I was just going to say, I, I talk to a lot of students about how junior doctors, how they control their lives. And I would say... 
any hobbies or sports that you did at school or university, keep them going throughout medical school. Mm -hmm. Don't drop them. Your life is more important. And everyone asks you to do stuff, and I need to remember this. You can only do one or two projects at one time. And even if the professor of Harvard says, can you do a project for me? You have to say no, because you won't finish it. Yeah. Because I need a life as well. And it's saying it's okay to say no, and people will respect you, rather than having to chase, oh, did that email bounce, and you're doing it at three o'clock in the morning. It's just... You need to look after yourself. We can't and that's perform at our best, can we? When we're zoning out. Yeah, of course. Yeah. We can't perform at our best when we're um, tired. You know, it's, it's exactly the same yeah. in sport and in academia. Um, before we go, Liz, I want to ask you a, a slightly different question, as it were, that's pretty topical and, and really interesting to me. Because um, I, I heard on the news today that Donald Trump said that um, the NHS should be on the table for any future trade deal between the UK and the USA. Oh. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if, if you as someone on the ground, as it were, had an opinion on what that would mean for the NHS and what it means for the country. I think it would mean being privatised and being sold off. To me, I don't think the NHS should be political. I think there should be a 10 or 20 year plan looking at the expansion of the population, what's going to happen. And whoever comes into government doesn't change it because this is a national agreed plan for the health of our nation. And what often happens is governments come in and put their tweak on it. And it takes five years to do the tweak. Then someone else comes in and does it. And just leave it alone. Give it the money and let it build and grow and stop interfering. Yeah, that, that completely That's makes sense. That's what I'd love. To stop making it political. We, one of the problems is, as well as doctors and nurses fleeing because of Brexit, life used to be kind of 36 weeks in utero to kind of 75, 80. Now it's almost 24 weeks up to 105. Mm. we've almost gained an extra 30 years of life we can treat because medicine's got better, but we don't have the drugs or the beds or the people, and there's no money to help with that. And if the governments keep coming in and tweaking and cutting this and cutting that, it's just going to crumple. Which is why, I guess, there's not and been enough was... invested in social care, especially in geriatrics, no. right? With and... All those old people that are not just physically ill, but also, like, crazy lonely and, and you know, nobody around know. them and that sort of and... thing. It's kind of heartbreaking. The community care homes have all gone. You often get old people waiting to go home, but it takes three weeks to get the, the council social care funding to get them to go home. But then they get ill and they don't get there. But it's also looking after the staff. People forget the doctors are people, incredibly intelligent people who work for very long hours, actually not a lot of money, and the burnout is rife everywhere. We need to look after the staff. We need to look after their health and their well-being because we are patients too. Yeah, of course. And the NHS doesn't really care about you. You are a cog in a system who are just kicking over, getting the clinics done, getting the answer. They don't care about the well-being of their staff. It's hard enough to get a day off if you're getting married in a year advance because the rotor's done two weeks before. This is how we treat intelligent people in their 30s and 40s. And I think it has to become a public-funded body that's left alone and given money. The minute it's on the table, it'll become privatised. There's already discrepancy with cancer drug access. So a lot of people, if you're diagnosed two months before a new drug comes out and you're started on something else, then you can't get it because it's a second-line treatment. And people are having to pay to get access to these drugs because of the timing issue and red tape. There's already problems. Wow. You start privatizing it and putting it on the table. It's just going to be, I worry. Yeah, absolutely. And, and before you know it, it becomes a, a case of if you can afford it, then you're much more likely to live than someone who can't afford oh, yeah. it. And that's exactly the opposite so of, of what the NHS you, is about. 
you hear bills of people having their appendix taken out in the States and it's £125,000. To have a cesarean in the States can be almost two or £300,000. Mm, that's nuts. That's like, like, it just blows my mind. To go that way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It does, but, it, but it, you know, it's, it yeah. worries me. Well, thank you so much. I think, I mean, I could talk to you for ages and ages and ages. Um, and I really want to. And I'm kind of looking at Claire and I'm also looking at my clock thinking I've got to go and put a child to bed. <laughs> um, but it's just it's so fascinating. All of the areas um, that kind of that you cover. And I know we haven't even scratched the surface of that. So maybe we'll look at having you on in the future, especially as yeah, I imagine I'd love to the response to this podcast will be from people feeling enlightened, but also having questions, which we'll no doubt have. Um, yeah. If you had, so, uh, my... if... go on. Sorry. No, I'm interrupting you. I do that a lot. No, no, please go, go. Typical surgeon. Uh, please say, go I, ahead. I've got, <laughs> I've got a blog. I haven't updated for a while. But a website. Um, you can put the details on the page. It's liz.arrazer.co.uk, where you can. I've written a book, The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, where I talk about exercise and diet in that. But there's also my contact details there on Twitter and my email. So people want to get in touch, feel free. Great. Thank you so much. And um, and as I said earlier, if there's anything that we can do for you in the future and, you know, whether it's me as a PT giving advice on general exercise to people or whether you feel that that, you know, a running group for people with cancer is a potential as well. We obviously know a, a reasonable amount. Well, Definitely. I do. So the, then... the 5K your way, do you promote that? So uh, say that again, sorry. The 5K your way? Uh, I've not heard of the 5K your way. The Lucy Gossage is one of my, Lucy Gossage is one of my cancer bits co-founders who together she's an oncologist and a triathlete who's one Iron of those an Iron Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I know her together but I haven't with, heard of that. Yeah. Jenna Hillier Moses, who is an elite runner who had lymphoma and came back to race for G B. They set up five K your way. Just Google the website. So the last Saturday of every month we're trying to get cancer patients to come and do park run, walk, jog, crawl, and then bring your family and friends to get them starting to run with the NHS Couch to five K app. Oh, amazing. Well, we have... Help um, make it a social thing, so... We have our run club members all around the country. We've got 350, and it's a virtual run club, and I'm sure oh, we, wow. we can get those guys repping at a park run yeah. and encouraging those guys along, so we'll Definitely. give you a shout about that for sure. And if you send me the link, I can tweet out about your run club, and amazing. yeah, that'd be fantastic. Well, um, I guess I want to say thank you. I'm sure Claire wants to say something as well because um, she's waving at me and, and being nuts. Um, but thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. And, and thank you for not just dealing with being ill and, and having such a condition, but for being so positive as a result as well and, and being so normal. Um... You've stolen my thunder. Oh, sorry, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, you go ahead because I've, I've done, I've done my poetic <laughs> No, I was just, uh, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Just um, thank you so much for coming and chatting to us. And it, it, yeah, it, it's been hugely positive, which I guess beforehand I didn't know if it would, if it would be a bit kind of, you know, down and dark. I can do and... that next time if you want. <laughs> I, we I love down and dark. dark yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, but I think it's just so refreshing to hear someone be so open and honest and positive. And um, yeah, everything you're doing is incredible. So thanks for talking to thank us you. and um, thanks for coming on. And, and I'm sure we'll be speaking again. Here, here. So that was Liz. That was Liz. Did you like her? I did like her. She was very nice, wasn't she? Do you feel inadequate? Oh, God, yeah massively and stupid yeah especially because you guys are like got all this stuff in common and i'm like oh cake <laughs> well i mean when you say we have stuff in common we literally have a woman in medicine in common 
I did a degree in biomedical sciences, and do you want to know why I did that? Why? Because it sounded a bit like medicine, but I was too stupid to do it. <laughs> <laughs> She's amazing, though. What I really liked about her is the outlook that followed illness, and almost that kind of uh, reticence that, ooh, reticence, that she didn't realise what she had before mm. she got ill. Yeah. I love that we're judging her right now, you know, just talking about her rather than asking her all this stuff. But that's kind of, kind of what I got. Well, I feel like we could have spoken to her for at least another hour. Um, but, you know, our podcasts are getting a bit too long, so yeah. we had to cut it short. But, yeah, yeah, I think um, it, it's cliche, isn't it? Like, that you don't know what you've got until it's gone. Like, that type of freedom. Um, that that's something. All. You know <laughs> yeah that something terrible happening gives you but i i don't know i i just yeah she was hugely positive and um is obviously doing great things so yeah fair play to her but i think this also means we're still looking for a normal person to come on the podcast because so far everyone is still extraordinary I know. apart from us yeah well you. apart from me yeah i'm the only very average person that we speak to um but yeah yeah so (laughs) if um low average (laughs) if anyone normal wants to come and chat to us (laughs) let us know but you have to be normal you can't be secretly extraordinary because this is our problem at the moment yeah (laughs) although it's not because what i'm kind of realizing is that Oh, it's going to sound really cheesy. Everyone is extraordinary. No, this is this is kind of what. Apart from your mum. Apart from mum, who's just you know that's where I get it from. Average. <laughs> She's average. I'm below average. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's kind of my takeaway. And I've had a few people talk about the podcast that we did with Kathy a couple of weeks ago, and um, just how amazing she is, and how kind of incredible she came across on the podcast. Um. And, you know, she's just a normal person yeah. um, who happens to, you know, like the sport that she does. And I think that's really key for me. And uh, almost everyone who we've had on kind of fits that bill. They're not out there being or trying to be extraordinary every day. It's I don't just... know, that Ben guy, he had a big head, if you ask me. Oh, <laughs> I, I still think Ben's was one of the best podcasts kidding, we've I'm had. Kidding. he's nice. <laughs> we need subtitles, though. That's the problem. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that Kathy podcast was pretty long, though. I think some people are still listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and they started two weeks ago. So we should probably uh, just about wrap this up. Yeah. Uh, before we do, what's coming up? Because we've got loads coming up, haven't we? And uh... So what do we have coming up? So tomorrow is Global Running Day. No, today is Global Running Day because this is being published today and not yesterday when we recorded it. Oh, yeah. Okay, so... One for the bloopers reel. <laughs> this is confusing me. Today will be Global Running Day when this goes out. Um, and uh, yeah, we have put on a little event for that where people are going to just go out and run and track their runs through the Strava um, functionality on our new shiny website. Yeah, or the not Strava functionality because they don't have to have Strava to do it. No, that's true. They can also manually upload via any kind of GPS, treadmill. Yes. Screenshots screenshots. Runthings.co.uk slash events and you'll find it if you want to quickly take part. Nice. There you go. Thank you very much. <laughs> and we had some flags made, which is really exciting yeah. in my opinion. But more exciting than all of that is currently today there's 27 days until the run around the world starts. 
Oh, what's the run around the world, Claire? Could you tell me more about that? I don't think we talk about it enough. Um, essentially, four massive virtual teams um, take on the challenge of seeing how far they can get um, running around the globe um, in a month. Uh, obviously, virtually, you don't actually have to go run through Africa and America. Very dangerous yeah. place, America. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say America is. Um, yeah, but essentially trying to cover that distance uh, in the month of July. And as always, our events are to help raise money and awareness for Mind, the mental health charity. Oh, they're nice at Mind. I like those guys. And I think as well, before we move on, lovely little link to someone at Mind, um, Sophie, who did the Edinburgh Marathon last weekend, I think. Um, and she got a massive PB. And Sophie's one of the coordinators for the uh, London and Brighton marathon teams that they put on. And she did her first marathon last year and did brilliantly. Um, and this year has absolutely smashed it. Yeah. So. And she's such a lovely, lovely, lovely oh human. Oh, my God. Yeah, she is. Ever so small. Cutest person in the uh, world, I'd say. Yeah. Apart from my son. Yeah, that's I've true, got a son, actually. have I ever said. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. we need to go because this is getting long. Yeah. Well done, uh, Sophie. There's a joke in there somewhere. I'm not going to bother. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye.